<laughs> I won't share my testimony this morning other than to say uh, I was a, a immoral, godless young man. I was 19 years old. I was a student at Kent State University. And it wasn't Christian Challenge, but a guy from Campus Crusade just asked me in the student union, do you have time to answer a survey? And I already knew who he was, and I said, sure. And I came to Christ that day because somebody asked me. So we're all for Christian challenge in the ministry there at Washburn University. You know, the world is full of people just like that. Some people are coming from homes, you have no idea what they've ever heard, what they know, what they don't know. We don't want to assume. We want to have the conversations. We want to make the touches anyway. So we love that. And I think we've known the Freericksons for decades at least also. So they, they've been at our table and knew our girls too. So a lot, just total, total positive there. Uh, to the thing at hand this morning, I'm going to be back in the book of Psalms this morning. If you have a Bible or if you have your app, you can turn there now. I'm going to be in Psalm 73 and, and a little bit of background before we get there. We started going through select Psalms last year. I think it was January of 22. And so we've been through books one and two of the Psalms. And you know, on one hand, we say the book of Psalms singularly. It's one book. There's 150 Songs, You know, we say P-S-A-L-M-S, Psalms, but it just means songs. It's a book of songs. And it was Israel's hymn book. And so these were the songs they sang. So there's that single book of 150 songs, but within that single book, it's been broken down historically a long, long time ago into five smaller books. And if you read commentaries or different people, they'll say one reason or another, the guess is this, the guess is that. Uh, there's five books of Moses, so there's five books in the Psalms, or there's a particular kind of theological or practical progression as you work through the books of Psalms. I don't think anybody knows necessarily, but we know it's a way to break them down and think about them. So we've said we've already gone through book one, and that was a number of Psalms from one through 41. We took a break, and then we went through book two, 42 through 72, and we took a break. And so this morning we're going to start... We'll start in book three, but my plan this fall, and it will go right into January of next year, would be to do select psalms from books three and four. So it takes us from Psalm 73 this morning to 89, that's book three, and then 90 through 106, that's book four. So I can't remember how many it is, but in the selection. And on the selection, it's sort of, uh, there's a lot of repeat themes in the book of Psalms. And so um, the, the hope or the methodology, the method in the madness is trying to get a breadth of them so that we're not hitting the same points routinely, but we're hitting sort of the diversity that you see within the Psalms. That's, that's the method in the madness. Psalm 73 specifically is written by a guy named Asaph. Again, depending on your commentaries or your study Bible, it might say it was actually written by Asaph or, or these were written by people that... And it, Asaph's name gets put on it. I'm going to show him the courtesy. It has his name. I'm going to assume he wrote it. He wrote Psalm 73 through 83, and he also wrote Psalm 50. And Asaph was one of three worship leaders. So there was Asaph, Haman, and Ethan, kind of like Sean and Josiah and Bill. That's my take. <laughs> there were... So your, your study sheet has the reference. It's 1 Chronicles 6. So in Chronicles retelling of part of the life of David, um, it's Chronicles that tells us it was David that set up the worship at the tabernacle. You know, he wasn't a Levite, but it, he was the worshiper, you know, par excellence. And about half the Psalms in the book of Psalms are written by David. Well, during his reign, he set up worship and he appointed three worship leaders from the three houses that descended from Levi, and Asaph was one of those. So he's got 11 psalms, songs, that have his name attributed to them. Uh, Haman has one, and Ethan has one. And in Psalm 73, um, Asaph sort of bears his soul because he tells us about this experience in life he went through. And just put this in perspective before we start it. So, so this is this holy guy who's hanging out at the, 
the tabernacle. So remember, no temple yet. It's a tent. But David's moved it to Jerusalem, and it's where Israel's coming up to worship. So this is one of the three key song leaders, worship leaders at the tabernacle, the holy place, the holy of holies, where God, this is one of those three key guys, and he tells you basically what troubled his soul, and he tells you the way he sinned, and he told you the confusion he was going through, that Psalm 73 is going to walk through his experience, and he starts at a good place, and he ends at a good place, but in between he tells you, I was losing my way. I wasn't sure what I believed. I wasn't sure what to make sense of anything that was going on. And so it's kind of a song of instruction. So we're supposed to read his account. And then maybe if you came from Sunday school, then we practice law, do. Then we, we don't do what he did. Okay, so we don't do what he did in this psalm. But it's a warning. It tells us this is what you're susceptible to. So the reason I'm pointing this out He's kind of the best of the best. You know what I'm saying? He's the worship leader. He's the godly man. But he tells you the depth of despair and confusion and sin he fell into because of a perspective issue. Because of a perspective issue. Alan Ross summarizes the psalm this way. He wrote, Confessing his doubts, which nearly overwhelmed him when he compared his life with the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist declares that he overcame his troubled thoughts in the sanctuary, where he realized that their end was their destruction, but his future was glorious. And let me pause for just a second. We've said in the past in these psalms, so we want to speak in the language God speaks. So from Psalm 1 forward, God says there are people, and you know what he calls them? Wicked. Wicked people. And he says there are people, and they do evil. Do you know that there are wicked, evil people in the world today? Do you know that we, if you claim Christ today, do you know that we were evil, wicked people? Okay, so we're not using this as some underhanded pejority. We're speaking in the language God speaks. And you know, at the end of the day, when we're presenting the gospel, thinking of Christian challenge and the gospel and the campuses again, you know, we're telling people nicely, but bluntly, repent and trust a loving saving creator because if you reject that loving offer that costs god everything you're choosing wickedness you're choosing to be evil and remain evil so this is a thing so we're speaking in the language scripture speaks in so asaph's going to talk about wicked people and friends we've been wicked and we live among a wicked people. Do you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6? He, he's the holy guy in his day, right? God's man, God's prophet. He sees God. And what does he say? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm God's prophet. And my lips and my heart and the things I say are unclean. And I live a, among a people of unclean lips. So we're not casting stones, right? We're all on the same page. God uses the term wicked. We use the term wicked. Uh, let's see. Also, Psalm 73, if you've read through the Psalms much, you know this. Psalm 73 and 37, 37 and 73, take the numbers, reverse them. They're the same theme. So 73 is Asaph, 37 is David, and they both are asking this question. They're, they're saying, Lord, we don't get it. We don't understand why you've got these crazy good blessings on the wicked people and, and not us godly ones. We don't get it. I'll mention this in case I forget it later. This is a major theme in Scripture. And there's a theological term that has to do, we're going to talk about really two different things here. There's a theological term that has to do with how do we grapple with, we say God is just, perfect, holy, true on one hand, and we look at this world and we say, how can that be? And, and this is called theodicy. Not odyssey, theodicy. Sorry. <laughs> so... So, or if you say, if God's holy and righteous, good and true, then how can there be evil in the world? That's the, the thought that we grapple with. And that's part of what Asaph is going to grapple with. And that thought is, um, Theos is God and Dike is, is the root for righteousness or justification in the New Testament in the Greek. And so this is a way to explain how a holy, true, righteous God is just when we look at the unjust world around us, what do we make of it? How do I, how do I rationalize this? 
because you guys, everybody sees this. You know, I just saw this morning's uh, Wall Street Journal headlines. Uh, guys, 2,000 people in Morocco perished last night or yesterday in an earthquake. They're just gone. And you know, were they qualitative, quantitatively different than us? Not a bit. They're just human beings drawing breath on the earth. And they're gone. Or there's tragedy and you say, how can that be if God's holy and loving? So dealing with that, as well as a very specific sin. So we'll try and talk a little bit about both of those. I'm in the ESV, and uh, this is page 485 if you choose to use a pew Bible. So we're going to take this in sections, and I'll try and make sure I don't run long, okay? But I want to take it in sections because he's telling a story. He's telling us what happened to him. And so we want to walk through it the way he lived it. So Psalm 73, the title is a Psalm of Asaph. And verse 1 is, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, he starts with a summary statement, and he knows it's true. And this is what he says, you know what? God is good. Then we say, amen, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. He says a summary statement that he knows unequivocally, no exceptions, God is good. And here specifically, God is good to his covenant people. When has God ever not been good to Israel? Never. Is it possible for God to be less than good? That, this, here's a theological question for you. Can God ever be less than good? So, you know, we, we say God is simple in the sense that God is always and fully only what He is. and never changes. God never changes. So, if, if we as Christians want to say, what does the life of Christ reproduced in us look like? A good place to go is Galatians 5 because it lists nine fruits of the Spirit. And this is a sort of a qualified list of what does Christ's life look like in me? So really we're saying, what does God look like? And we all know God, uh, there's love and there's joy and there's peace and there's patience and there's kindness and there's goodness. Guys, goodness is part of the quality, the character, the nature of God. God is never less than good. It's an impossibility. So when we see, see things that challenge our understanding, this can't be right, this can't be good, it's not because God's less than good. So Asaph's starting with this understanding, I knew something to be true, he says, and then I lost my way. I knew God was good to Israel, I knew He was always good and only good to Israel, and then my focus changed, it blurred, and I forgot that. And that led me into this crazy experience of trouble, this downward slide into the sin of envy and the confusion and vexation that had to do with me trying to figure out how, this, how I could reconcile what I thought was true of God and what's going on in the world around me. So that's where he starts. I know God is good. And by the way, we say, try and say this every Sunday, when we talk about Asaph, he's a believer in the Old Testament. He's a saved man. And so he's given the experience of a saved man. We say every Sunday, I try to, something along this line. This, we're, we're talking, we're defining this for the saved. And so the question is, are you saved? Do you know Christ? So don't assume this psalm is for you if you don't know Christ. So we want to say every week, do you know Christ? And he doesn't make it hard, right? Jesus died for the sinful. People like you and me, we receive the grace gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, by saying yes. I say, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Thanks for dying for my sins. You know, it says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we say, call on the name of the Lord and then inherit the blessings both in time and in eternity. So we want to know that not only Jesus died, but he died for me. Okay, so here's the problem. Verses two and three. So he starts with what I know to be true, and now I start falling off the edge here. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph says, I'm, I'm going along my, my merry way, I know some things are true about God, and then suddenly it's like I'm walking on a sidewalk and there's a patch of ice, and I almost fall down and crack my head. And it's everything I, I can do to keep my sort of my moral, my mental, my emotional balance because I don't get what's going on. So my gaze has gone from God and now it's gone horizontal and this is what he's going to define what he saw. But he says, I was envious. 
And on a couple of these points in the psalm, I want to linger long enough to say, to define, so we're thinking hard concept, what does that look like? Guys, has anyone here ever been envious? And how do we, how do we define envy? Um, let me just read a little bit, uh, give you a, fill this out a little bit. So Asaph starts the song, I know something. Now he says, all of a sudden, I'm envious. So envy turned his sensibilities and his calm and his peace and his understanding of God, his calm relationship with God upside down and inside out. The sin of envy. This is a confession of sin. This is Mike's definition and description to some degree, and then I've got some quotes for you. Envy is the unhappy dissatisfaction we have regarding our own life and possessions when we see what others have and we do not. Envy is always about the other. Envy is always about someone has something and I don't. Or someone has something and I don't think they deserve it. Envy is always about what someone else has. And Asaph said, I was envious of the wicked. Envy is often accompanied by a feeling of ill will or malice toward the person possessing what we think we should have and or what they should not have. Envy. This is what he says. I envied the wicked. Now, the Hebrew word used here is kanah. It's used 32 times in the Old Testament. And that, that one Hebrew word is typically translated in one of two English words. It's either envy or it's jealous. I'm envious or I have jealousy. So, in English, we usually separate those. We differentiate envy towards others versus jealousy. And we've talked about this in the past. Guys, jealousy, remember, in the Bible is a God characteristic. Jealousy is not inherently a bad thing. We're meant to be jealous for that which is uniquely ours. We talked about this in the Song of Solomon. So I am jealous for my wife. If I'm not jealous for my wife, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So in the English, we differentiate those two terms. The Hebrew term alone does not make differentiations. We have to see what the context is. So I envy what others have and I don't. That's, we might say, coveting. I covet, I want what they have. But I'm jealous over that which is uniquely my own. So we're making a distinction. The Hebrew can be used either way. What is mine is mine. Jealousy. What is yours should be mine. Envy. What is mine is mine. Jealousy. What is yours should be mine. Envy. Here's another thing about this. Have you guys ever been really angry? And there's a moment in which the anger feels really empowering and powerful. But you know what? The, the Scripture is full of warnings about don't be angry. Why? Because when we give way to anger, by the way, it's a, it's a uh, fruit of the flesh. It's a deed of your old sinful carnal nature. Uh, scripture speaks with only two or three qualifications for humans getting anger, anger right. So in that moment, I feel powerful. But guys, I don't, I don't um, uh, get, I'm not controlling anger. Anger's controlling me. And that's what envy is like. In the moment, we might say envy feels really good, but we don't possess envy and control envy. Envy's a sin, and it possesses and controls us. So envy's never a good thing. As a moth gnaws a garment, so does envy consume a man, Chrysostom said. Thomas Aquinas said, sorrow at another's good. Someone else got a blessing, and it ticks me off. Envy begins by asking plausibly, doesn't this sound innocent? Why should others enjoy what I may not? Dorothy Sayers. Envy diminishes the sense of blessing we otherwise have. This can be true in any, any way of life. I can be going along thinking life is swell and I see somebody else that I don't think is deserving and they got a blessing and I'm like, my life's turned upside down. Check this out. This was in a business article just this last week. In fact, I read it because the title had the term envy in it. <clears throat> There was a survey taken in the business world and they didn't give enough definition to tell you when and where and all this thing. But here, here was the survey question. If at your place of employment, you can have two weeks of vacation, two weeks of vacation, and your other employer, employees get one week, that's an option you can choose. You get two, they get one. You, that's choice A. Behind door B, here's the other option. 
you get four weeks. You get four weeks, twice the number of weeks of vacation, and the other employees get eight. Which one do you think got chosen more frequently than the other? A got chosen. What's that about? It's envy. It's I don't want someone else to have more than I have. And I don't care if it costs me. Envy is inherently destructive. It's insane, like all sin is. Ultimately, it's insane. Uh, The problem for Asaph was this sidelong glance at what others had, and not only what others had, but that the people the psalmist didn't think worthy should enjoy those blessings, but they were. So he's caved to the sin of envy, and he's also got that consternation about it doesn't look fair, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So what did he see? What did he see that gave him such turmoil? That's verses 4 through 12. So now he's talking about the wicked. He's talking about the blessings he saw in the life of the wicked. He says they have no pangs, no pain. Life is easy until they die. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And Scripture's using the term fat. We're not thinking like in the West, we're all obese and we're all overweight. This is prosperous. Guys, in the ancient world, if you could be fat, this was a good thing. So it's, it's that they have a life of ease and they have a life of abundance. They go to the spa. They lift weights. They go to the gym. They have a personal trainer. They get their hair dyed or cut or done or whatever. Their life looks like the kind of life I want. He says they are not in trouble like others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They not only have plenty, but they're free from trouble. Therefore, verse 6, pride is their necklace violence covers them as a garment. And what you'll see throughout, especially the Old Testament, the wicked are routinely defined as proud and violent or harmful against others. Their eyes, this is again this this thought of abundance, their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflows with follies. The thought here isn't that that they're so fat, their eyes are bulging. The thought is... Their life is so full, it can't be contained. They, physically, and, and the life around them, they're overflowing. They have so much good stuff, they can't contain it all. They're supremely blessed. It says they scoff, and, and this sort of, uh, that's their blessings. And now he turns and he says, oh, and by the way, this is a little bit about what they're like. They scoff and they speak with malice. It's a kind of hatred, very intentional hatred. Uh, loftily they threaten oppression they set their mouths against the heavens and with their tongue they strut through the earth they brag they're boastful by the way this image of setting their mouth against heaven is one of the descriptive terms of the antichrist in the book of daniel these aren't a little wicked these guys are really wicked Uh, therefore and listen to verse 10 so they are supremely blessed but they're really wicked. But listen to one of the things that follows. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Guys, this says the people around them look at them and say, I want to be like them. The wicked. Why? Because of the blessings they're enjoying. This is, here's a pause moment. Who are the people that you and I look up to and aspire to be like and Why? And who do our kids look up to? Who are they taking their cues from saying, I want to be like that person, like him or her, and why? And guys, you know, in the age we live in, communication is everywhere. Uh, Was it Taylor Swift? And I don't know Taylor Swift. I'm not knocking Taylor Swift. But she broke the internet. She was going to sell tickets to something. This was, it became a judicial thing. It's like, I have no idea. But there's so many people that wanted to see her concert that it broke whatever the internet platform was by which they could get tickets. This was a year or two ago. Man, that's a following, isn't it? So it sort of raises this question. Asaph says, I looked at these wicked guys and their abundance and ease, and you know what I realized? Everybody's following them. They think this is their guy or this is their kind of guy because of the success they enjoy. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? (laughs) We're living life on our terms. We don't know and don't care about anybody named God. Behold, he says, verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
He just says, I looked around, I saw the wicked, I know what they're like. And they just look like they've been supremely blessed by God and I don't get it. And everybody thinks they're the ones to follow. This kind of envy is a common theme in Scripture and that means it's a common temptation to us. This, remember, Asaph's giving us a lesson. He's walking us through his experience. Why? Because we're tempted in exactly the same way he was. Absolutely exactly. Uh, I think for time I'll skip some of the reading some of the verses. There's a Job passage that represents this same conundrum for Job. He's asking the same question. He says, I'm looking and I see exactly the same thing going on. Asaph envies what others have and he doesn't. And he's vexed and he's confused and he's thrown off balance because he doesn't understand why God would do that in the world God runs. We say God is sovereign. There's nothing existed before God. Anything that has existence exists because God gave it existence. Anything that happens in this cosmos is because God causes or allows all things. Can't be otherwise. So Asaph is legitimately asking, Lord, I don't get it. I know you're good. I know you're good all the time. And yet this is what I see. What, what gives? How do I see this? How do I think about this? Now, if we say from this psalm, uh, you go away and you say, okay, I'm going to be careful. You know, when I look at the wicked, whoever, whoever that is, whoever that is, I'm not going to be like them because I get it. I'm not going to envy what the wicked have. Let me ask you this. If God blesses your Christian friend with a spouse and not you, are you okay with that? Or if God blesses your Christian friends with children and you can't have kids, are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Guys, it's as easy to envy the righteous as the wicked because envy is a thing all by itself apart from who has the goods that we would like. Envy, horizontally, envy towards others is a thing and it doesn't matter whether the person is wicked or a godly Christian. They have something and I don't and I want it and I think I should have it if they have it. And this, you think about the 10th commandment I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said, even if you thought you got through the first nine, okay, you get to the 10th and you're done. Don't covet. Don't covet anything that someone else has and God hasn't given you. Don't covet. So this is as potentially a temptation and problematic for us among our own group, among our own friends, among the body of Christ, among God's family, as it is if we're looking outside at people we say, well, they're wicked and so they shouldn't get that. You might look at your friends and say, your Christian friends, your godly neighbors, and say, man, I wish I had what they had. Or man, I wish they, I had the ease they had. So this can cut in a couple different directions at least. Uh, look at verse 13 through 15. So Asaph says, God's good, I know it, but I almost fell. Why is that? Because this is what I saw. The ease and the wealth of the wicked. And now he turns to himself and he says, all in vain... Have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence? Well, why is that, Asaph? Because all day long I have been stricken. And that word means I have been beaten. I have been struck down and rebuked every morning. I've been reproved. I've been punished every morning. This is God's man. This is God's worship leader. And he says, my experience hasn't been ease and blessing. I feel like I'm getting up in a dogfight every day and losing. So the wicked, the guys that act like God's not a thing, they get all the good stuff. And here am I, I'm washing my hands, I'm trying to honor God in everything I do, and I am getting hammered. That's my experience. Honoring God, I get hammered. Lord, where's the justice? Where's the love, Lord? I'm not feeling the love. How do I think about this? What does that look like? You see the same thing in Ecclesiastes 7.15 and 8.14. I'll let you guys read that later. So, so here's the thing. I see what the wicked get and I know my own experience. And, and I'm agitated and I'm upset and I'm not feeling the love. But look at what happens at verse 15. And this is have a care moment. This is pause to have a care. Look what happens at verse 15. Guys, internally, he, he's just in turmoil. He is vexed. He is frustrated. He's upset. He's telling God this isn't fair internally, okay? Upside down inside. But you know what? He drew a line in the sand. 
even while in the midst of his sin. And this is what he did. He refused to speak out of that unholy, sinful emotion to others. He drew a line at what he would say to others. And you know why? Because he knew, I would have betrayed. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I, if I was willing at that moment, I'm looking back, and if I would have told other people how unfair I think God is, and He's ripping us off, and don't bother being godly because you just get slammed to the ground, it's not worth it. If I spoke out of that anxiety and that frustration and that envy, He says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed those who look to you because I would have been sowing the seeds of doubt and sin and unbelief. And I would have been harming God's family and God's children. Guys, he drew a line in the sand and he said, I may be feeling all this internally, but I refuse to speak it to others. So here's a question. What are our words like when we're frustrated and angry and upset? And, and are we not only taking the, the don't do what Asaph did lesson, that's a good one, are we also following him refusing to speak to others out of our frustration and anger? So we could ask it this way, what, what is the fruit of the words I'm speaking into the lives of others? What are others getting because I've spoken with them? And especially in relationships that are close, that we are less guarded in, usually spouses, children, parents, good friends, people we sort of think we can, we can presume upon. What am I saying when I'm frustrated or vexed like ASAP? Have I drawn a line in the sand and say, even though I know I'm not in happy fellowship with God in the moment, I am not willing to do that to others of God's children. I, am, I refuse to sow the seeds of unbelief that I'm experiencing in the moment into the lives of others. This is a thing. You know, Jesus said we will give an account for every word we speak. We need to be careful with our words. And even in this experience of extreme frustration, Asaph said, I'm not going past that line. I refuse to speak out of what I'm feeling right now. That's a lesson all to itself. Now, if you get to verses 16 and 17, so he's told us, I started okay, God's good. Slip, don't know what to make. Here's, the, here's what the wicked get. Here's what I get. Everything pivots at verses 16 and particularly at verse 17. So he says this, When I thought how to understand this, so the wicked are blessed, I'm hammered, I'm trying to figure it out, he says, uh, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can't, find, I can't box my way out of this bag. I can't get to some successful conclusion or resolution. It's, I'm wearying, I'm thinking about it, praying about it, but I can't find a resolution. Look what happens at verse 17. Until. I'm vexed, I'm confused, I'm out of sorts. Until something happens. Something happens. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Everything changed for Asaph when he met with God. So you remember initially his, his focus is on God. I know something about God. He's always good, good all the time. But I lost my focus on God because I saw this thing going on around me that I didn't understand. And he said, guess when I gained understanding? When my focus went back to God. When I got in God's presence, everything came into focus. I should say, let me qualify this. He didn't solve the why question. Asaph doesn't say, I've got the, I've got the why question answered. God, why that wicked guy? Why that? Why me? Why my experience? He doesn't say that. But he says in the big picture, I understood. And it took care. It resolved this internal frustration, this sin of envy. So I'm confused until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So let me ask you this. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for us? What did it look like for Asaph? So if Asaph says he went to the sanctuary of God, what did that look like for him? Guys, he went to a tent on a hill. He went to a compound physically, right? 
the Jews aren't thinking of, of pie in the sky. They're thinking of Yahweh in the Holy of Holies, behind the holy place, in a tent. And there's the basin of, there's, there's the laver of water, and there's the, the um, sacrifices being made. Guys, he went to church, is what he did, right? You know, sometimes um, two things. For us to get in God's presence, hopefully, we talk about this routinely, we hope that everybody who calls Lion Lamb their church home gets, we think you ought to be meeting with God every day, personally, privately at home. It's a good thing. It's not just read your Bible, it's meet God in His Word. And it's pray. That's a personal relationship. That's you and I in the presence of God. And so, um, (laughs) Kathy and I were in St. Mary's, Kansas uh, two weeks ago. And it suddenly struck on me, man, I could go see this brand new Roman Catholic cathedral. And so we did. Man, is it impressive. It's huge. It's, you know, old school, big size and architecture. And, and uh, you know, this is what we grew up with, by the way, of course. And so we go in. I just want to see what it looks like inside. We drove around the outside, go in the inside. And the Catholic churches, when I grew up, they're never locked. You could go in morning, noon, or night into God's presence. Because for the Catholics, remember... God's real presence is in the host on the altar in the little box. God's in the little box there on the altar. And so you can go and you can kneel down. You can meet with God. And so we went in. We're looking around. You know, there's, I don't know, six, eight, ten people. And they're sort of spread around. This place seats 1,700 people. You know, they're spread around. They're not taking up any space. But it's that thought. Here we are. And maybe probably most of them were older. They probably, my guess is they do this regularly. They go and they meet with God. They're in that building. So that's one way of thinking about it. But really, Asaph has in mind, I think, this. It's not me and God, the two of us. It's I'm going where God hangs out. That's at that tent. And what's going on at that tent? There's people coming, guys. And they're, they're coming all day, every day. You know, from the morning sacrifice to the evening sacrifice, people are coming. And they're offering gifts, fellowship offerings, because we're thankful. Sin offerings, because we've blown it. And guys, even if Asaph wasn't on duty, Haman and Ethan, they're leading singing worship of God at the sanctuary. So what's Asaph do to regain clarity? He goes to church. He goes to the worship meeting of the church, of the nation there in God's presence. The equivalent for us would not be, I'm sitting by myself at home. The equivalent would be, I went and I gathered with the saints in the meeting of the church. And this is a thing. God has promised, Matthew 16, Jesus said, if two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. Now, he's, every, he's omnipresent, right? But I'm there specifically. And you see that lived out. You see it demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. At the meeting of the church, the Holy Spirit showed up. Jesus showed up by the Holy Spirit, and this is what it looked like. And guys, there are things, God does things in our corporate meetings He doesn't do with you by yourself at home. He's made a different kind of promise to the church gathered. And when we come, and I hope you've experienced this, you hear a scripture taught or there's a song you're worshiping and you just feel like God spoke right to me right then. Either from His Word or we're singing the song and I know God's speaking right to me right in my situation. God does things. He shows up as He did for Asaph when the saints gather and worship together. And so he said, I got in God's presence and then everything became clear. And we want to say, we want to show up when the church gathers because God's there in a special way. He's with us always. You can't get away from God. That's theology. But he's present in a different way to bless when the church corporate gets together to worship him. So that's what we want to do. That would be the equivalent of what Asaph did. If we find ourselves, guys, more often than not, tempted to sins like envy or frustration, it's a good question to ask, where are we taking our cues from? Because it's not from meeting with God. It's not from meeting with God's people. We're taking our cues from someone and someplace else if this is our routine temptation. Uh, Look at what Asaph learned in God's presence. This is verses 18-20. through He says, Truly, you have set them... In slippery places. Do you remember he said, I felt like I was slipping almost to fall? He said, well, God has put them in real slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Friends, what's the end of the wicked? If the wicked stay wicked, what's their end? It's ruin. 
its eternal ruin. How they are destroyed. The wicked who have everything in the moment, what's their end? They're destroyed. They're destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors. It's as if a tsunami comes at the end of their life and it sweeps them away and it is terrifying. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself. Now, this is God's attitude toward them at this point. You despise them as phantoms. At the end of the day, remember God's held out His hands all day long. Not only to a stiff-necked people like Israel, but to the world like you and me. And to the Christ-rejecting, God-rejecting, gospel-rejecting world, at the end of the day, they don't have God's favor. They have ruin and they have destruction. Asaph now realizes that for all the material blessing the wicked have known, it all vanishes at death. Not only do they lose the world's wealth, but they enter into God's judgment. And guys, we don't wish this on anyone. We are happy to be gospel proclaimers saying, believe and be saved. You know, we want to be with the angels in, in, uh, with Lot. You flee the city. Destruction is coming. Psalm 1 verses 5 and 6. This is the first psalm. We talked about this a year and a half ago. But do you remember how that introductory psalm that talks about life on the big scale ends? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They won't stand there. Sinners won't be in the assembly of the righteous. They're not there. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He upholds it. He knows it. He's intimate. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. It ends in eternal death. Psalm 49.12. I also mentioned, I'll just let you look up Daniel uh, 5 later, but Belshazzar is a great example of this. So Belshazzar's the last king of the great empire of Babylon. He's got the wealth of the world, the power of the world. He's got the women. He's got the wine. He's got the song. And in one night, he's dead and cut off. And that's the end, not only of Belshazzar, but of the whole empire of Babylon. Just in a moment. Judgment. And it's over. Uh, verses 21 through 28, sort of understanding and resolution. So now... Now Asaph has walked us through his experience. Now he looks back and he says, When my soul, past tense, was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now these words are, these words are, see if you recognize any of these in your own experience. Embittered means sour. Really sour. My life tastes sour. It feels sour. It smells sour. A pricked is sharp. It means I was cut. Not only was it, somebody else didn't cut me, I was cutting myself. I was harming myself with a sharp knife. Brutish, brutish is a, a deep word. This one's hard to get a hold of. Brutish means I'm stupid. Sit on that one for a minute. Brutish means... <laughs> what were you like, Mike? I was stupid. <laughs> no, fill that in. I was really stupid. <laughs> And the last beast is actually the root for the term uh, behemoth in Job. It's I'm, I'm like an animal. Guys, I can't tell you how often this verse has come to Mike's mind. Lord, I was like a beast before you. By the way, does any Babylonian king come to mind if we say, Lord, I was like a beast before you? You remember Nebuchadnezzar? Proud king of Babylon. What does God warn him? Man, you've got to be done with that pride because you're not all that. I'm all that. And what's God turn him into? A beast that eats grass like a dumb ox. Guys, what are we like when we cave to envy? We're like a dumb cow in the field, just chewing our cud. We have no sense, no spiritual sensibilities. We're just like a dumb, stupid animal. Is that what we want to be? Because that's what we choose when we choose this kind of a sin. We're just dumb. We're stupid. We're agitated over sour bread, stupid without understanding the dumb beast in the field. Look at, uh, this is redemption here. Okay, so that's what he says. That's what I was like back in that experience. Now check out, what was God like when Asaph was like that? I'm stupid, I'm beastly, I'm dull to you and your things. Nevertheless, verse 23, I'm continually with you. He's not away from God. He might feel like God's 
abandoned him, but he's not away from God. He says, I'm continually with you. You have hold of my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but and we can say will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is one of the common images Mike has of Mike's life, Mike's walk with God. I was like a beast. And what does God say? And when I'm not thinking about God or trying to honor God, God says, and here's the picture. Um, imagine yourself, you're the parent, and you've got a five-year-old tyke, and you're downtown, it's a busy street, and you're going to go across. And Junior, Junior knows how smart Junior is, and Junior's going to cross the street by himself. But you've got his hand, and when Junior tries to flee your grasp and get across the street, what do you as the parent do? You hold tighter. Asaph says, I was like a beast. I was like a beast. What was God like? Oh, he was with me. And like a father, he held, he held me by the hand. I could only go so far in my sin and in my fall and in my confusion. And, and I'm all that over there. And what's God doing? Oh, he's being a great parent. He's got hold of my right hand. And I'm going nowhere. He's with me. I'm with him because he's holding my hand. That image, that's Mike's image of life. I was like a beast. God says, I've got this. I got hold of your right hand. So Asaph says, I was really stupid. I was out of line. And God was there with me the whole time. And guys, isn't that what we always <laughs> find? <laughs> you know, in our experience, we're with the prodigal son, we flee, we go to the distant country, or we get ticked in the moment, or we say, Lord, I'm done with you for the moment. I'm going to do, do things my own way. And you come back and you say, and the Lord's there the whole time. You can't escape him. Uh, whether, whether you see him as the hound of heaven chasing down the wicked, to make the wicked his son, or whether you see the parent who simply will not let Junior get away, God is either and he is both. Uh, verse 24, not only do you guide me wisely in this life, he says, but when I pass out of this vain world, you receive me to yourself into glory. Asaph realized God was with him in all his sufferings and Asaph would be with God in all his glories. You know, there's not a lot of really plain, blunt stuff in the Old Testament about resurrection, but this is a phrase, I'm going to be received by God into glory, into His very presence. I'm suffering now, trying to do the right thing, and life is hard, and I know at the end of all this, God receives me into His glorious presence. The hope of the wicked ends with death. The hope of the Christian is just beginning. Death is just the beginning of our hope. Because resurrection's coming and eternal glory forever in Christ is our end. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? So this is a way of saying, Lord, if I look up, if I look down, if I look sideways, highest heavens, anything on earth, at the end of the day, Lord, all that matters is you. Does this, you remember the song, uh, take the whole world but give me Jesus, take the whole world but give me, that's what he's saying. Uh, Jesus says, you know, if you gain the wealth of the world, but lose your soul, what, it, what did you gain? You gain nothing. So Asaph, he's coming. So Lord, if the wicked have everything and I have nothing in life, I've got you, I've got enough. Hebrews 13 says, um, be content with what you have. So this applies in all places at all times. Be content with what you have. Now, we ask the question, why? It's a good question. Why? Or how? Maybe how. Why or how? Well, why? Because Jesus finishes, because I am always with you. Be because the desire above every desire is with you every moment of your life. So whatever you don't have, Jesus says, you've got enough to be content. Why? Because, because He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's why. So as Christians, we have eternal life right now. And whether, whether the road's easy or hard, we have eternal glory to come. And we are living life in Christ's presence now. He is with us. We have enough to be content. We have enough to say no to envy every time. 
Notice what happened. Oh, let me finish those last two verses. Uh, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I've made the Lord my, I've regained my sanity. God's my refuge and strength. So notice what's happened. Verse 15, I'm agitated. I know better than to say anything. I got to stay quiet. I've got to say nothing because if I speak now, it's going to be unholy and destructive. But what does he say at the end? He says that I may tell of all your works. And how did it happen? I got into God's presence and he settled my heart and I gained perspective again. That's a good thing. Psalm 73, I will stop here. Uh, There's a couple more verses on your study sheet. I'll let you look those up later. Uh, Let me close with this. What good thing does God withhold from you? This is a Bible. This is a trick question. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. If God hasn't given you something, it's because it's not good for you. Or it's not good for you now. Uh, Is God unwilling? Is there anything that would restrict Him from giving us anything that was to our benefit? So this is Romans 8. Uh, That was Psalm 84, 11. Romans 8. He who did not spare His own Son... So if he didn't spare Jesus, how would he not also with him freely give us all things? There's there's no problem on God's side of wanting to bless us, of displaying his goodness to us. The, The trouble is our perception of what that goodness looks like at any given time. If we have Christ, we have enough. And guys, we want to emphasize, we want to focus on what's true. We want to speak words of faith and belief and theology to our own souls so we don't get lost like Asaph did. He forgot God's never less than good. Ever. Never less than good. He always gives what's good to the upright. And He's willing, but He's also wise, He's willing to give you anything if it's for your good. That's that's a God worth knowing and loving, isn't it? Well, if you would, rise with me and we'll close by reading from James 1 together. Let's read. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creature. Oh, thank you.